Welcome to the NFL Legends Show on the Grueling True Sports Network. I'm your co- I'm your host for the NFL Legends Show, Mike Goodpaster. Right now, I want to welcome in a, the head coach for the 1988 Cincinnati Bengals, Sam Weiss. How you doing, Coach? I'm Mike. I'm doing great. I'm down here in South Carolina. The weather has broken finally. There's no rain outside. So I don't want to hear you complain, Coach. I'm up here by Cincinnati, so a little bit of rain wouldn't be that bad compared to the snow. I understand. <laughs> I remember Cincinnati Gray. Yeah. yeah, it's Cincinnati Gray all the time this year. Actually, we got a little bit of sun today, but I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about the 88 Bengals and a little bit about your coaching career. And I think this starts off 1968. You joined the Bengals in their expansion season, and I've had guys like John Stofan and Bob Johnson on before. And I don't think people realize that expansion in 1968 wasn't exactly the way it was for the Panthers or teams like that more recently. They made it really tough for the Bengals to compete right out of the gate. Well, you know, we uh, actually we did. I mean, we had a, uh, a team that didn't know each other, so there's a disadvantage with that. We had a coaching staff that didn't know the players, you know, from history or having uh, finished the season with them. And, of course, the players didn't know the coaches, didn't know exactly their personality. So that started off, um, that made things start off a little bit slow. But um, we actually made the playoffs sooner than any team at that point uh, in the history of the NFL or the AFL because in 68 there was the AFL and the NFL. And then, of course, in 1970 they merged where you had the AFC, NFC, and then which made up the uh, the new National Football League. But um, we had uh, we had some good players. We had uh, a bus come in during training camp almost every day with new players <laughs> up at Wilmington, Ohio. Uh, no air conditioning in those days. Paul Brown would allow one fan per room. That was it. And uh, we would go and meet in uh, the classroom couldn't wear our cleats of course in those days you had those old screw-on cleats and uh you had to take your shoes off walk in there and had our meeting and then walk outside put the put your shoes on and hit the field it was a little different than today yeah and you talked about that team you had guys like paul robinson who without an injury could have been a great player and in 1969 there's a guy i want to ask you about by the name of greg cook and I, I heard Coach Walsh talk about him. I've heard Bob Trumpy talk about him. My dad used to tell me stories about him because I was born in 68, so I never really got to see him. What kind of a player was Greg Cook? I think Greg could have been one of the all-time greats in the history of the NFL. He was that kind of an athlete. Uh, Chillicothe, Ohio is where he came from, where he grew up. Uh, in fact, we were the, the one year that he was – um, healthy wasn't healthy the whole year, but the year that he was with us and started healthy, uh, he and I were roommates. So we got to be very good friends, being both of us being quarterbacks, to put the quarterbacks together so they could talk about game plans and, and so forth, quiz, <clears throat> quiz each other about different things. But Greg was six four, had that golden blonde hair. He was the first guy I ever saw ever use a hair blower, hair dryer <laughs> in the back, in the locker room. <laughs> in those days, you know, they're all butch cuts and stuff. Yeah. But Greg came in with a totally different um, persona and um, was a great player for, for he was able to pre- perform on the field and, and back up everything. But the players, you know, were draw- drawn to him right away because he could hit the slant pattern in stride, he could throw the ball deep down the field. He had a very quick release, kind of a Terry Bradshaw release, and uh, with you know just from the elbow out, and um, tight spiral, good scrambler, had a lot of speed, and at six four, and I would say I'm going to guess he was probably two fifteen, maybe something like that. Uh, had, had good body build where he could take a blow, and then actually. If he needed to for the first down, he would deliver the blow. He was not afraid to do it. He's a great player and and, and uh, could have been an all-time great. I feel uh, so bad for him because of the the injury to his right shoulder in a Kansas City game. Um, 
And actually, that was a game that I came in. I think we won that ball game, and I hit Bob Trumpy for an 80-yard touchdown, as I recall. Uh, it was 75 yards in the air, and Bob caught it and took two steps into the end zone. <laughs> and um, as he recalls, it was a little pop pass right over the line. He ran 75 yards and outran the defensive backs. But um, I'm not sure either is exactly what happened, but uh, but Greg was injured in that, um, I can't remember the name of the outside linebacker that hit him. It was a legal hit, but it was a, caught his shoulder in a bad position. And he really never came back from it. It was a torn rotator cuff. But in those days, they just didn't identify him quite as quickly as they do today. And uh, he was back out there throwing. But, of course, every time he rotated that shoulder, it, it uh, aggravated the, the, the tear. And... Uh, I still remember him yanking that helmet off at practice one day and saying, I can't do it anymore. I just can't throw it. It hurts too bad. And that was it. Uh, he went and played, you know, played with uh, when Bill Walsh was uh, in San Diego. He went down there and played or tried to for uh, a couple of years later, but just never was able to come back. Yeah, and you talk Bill Walsh, 1970, he was the offensive coordinator. I think you had a completely different quarterbacks in Virgil Carter and Greg Cook, to say the least. And that was mm-hmm. kind of what people call the West Coast offense kind of came into play then, didn't it? Because of Virgil Carter yeah. and maybe not the greatest arm strength. Well, uh, I think it was a style of play. I mean, it fit them perfectly, both of them. They were accurate passers. One thing had a quick release. Uh, both of them about the same uh, – well, when Kenny Anderson came in, uh, you know, you had pretty much the same size guys playing there uh, at that position. But um, it was a it was a progression passing game. And before that, the quarterbacks were taught to line up, drop back, read the coverage, and throw to the open guy. Well, sometimes you didn't have that much time to do that. So this West Coast offense, you memorize the blitz receiver. If, if they blitz to you're going to pop the ball to quickly. And then after that, your primary receiver, your secondary, number one, number two, and sometimes a number three, and then what I always call the guarantee, a dump-off guy, a save-a-sack kind of a throw. And uh, sometimes number three and the, and the dump-off guy were the same people. But you just went through that progression, bang, 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 and uh, – all the quarterbacks, and I took to it too. I just wasn't as good a player as they were. <laughs> they uh, they were really outstanding um, decision makers, and they were super accurate players. Quarterback. Yeah, and the thing that was amazing about the 1970 season is the Bengals became the first team to make it as an expansion team in just three years to the playoffs. But that team started mm-hmm. off one and six. Well, and you know. We knew uh, all the way through it that that team was pretty good. And that uh, we uh, not only had the players, but we were on the cusp of, of winning game after game, winning a lot of games. And I think the players, by the time that one and six, I didn't, I didn't remember that exact schedule. I knew we started off slow. But um, the, the team started to realize we're good enough to win these ball games. We were losing some games pretty close. We were losing games after having a lead, that kind of thing. So you started to realize in your own mind in that locker room that you were good enough to win. And I think the coaching staff was so supportive. Paul Brown never gave up hope, never never hinted at the fact that he didn't think the team was any good. It was always the other way around. And from an offensive standpoint, Bill Walsh and all the coaches that were involved from that side of it mimicked exactly what PB was doing. By the way, everybody called Paul PB in those days, and uh, and he liked it. So <laughs> we we kept it up. Obviously, you call him coach as well, but um, they had a that that was a great experience seeing it happen. And then when we won the division or got a chance to go to the playoffs, we found out that we were going to play the Baltimore Colts in Baltimore in the first game. And a great team. They had a quarterback, young quarterback named John Unitas. I don't know whatever happened to this. But um, 
Johnny Unitas, and uh, Raymond Berry was one of the wide receivers. Roy Jefferson was on that team. But um, I remember uh, an incident there. We, the score was, I think, 0-0 at the end of the first quarter and into the second quarter. I can't remember how far into it. Uh, Johnny Unitas threw a out cut to the outside to Roy Jefferson, uh, who ran down about 12, 14 yards and broke to the outside. And we went for the interception of defensive back there. I can't remember which one it was, but he went for the interception, didn't quite get there. Roy took it up the sideline for 50 or 60 yards for a touchdown, and it was 7 nothing into the second quarter. And I remember PB coming over. I'm standing next to Bill Walsh, and, and um, Bill is calling the offensive plays when the offense gets back on the field. And Paul walks over to uh, Bill and says, I want you to run the ball, get this game over with. I don't want to get blown out. <laughs> and and I, I look at Bill. Bill and I were very close, by the way. I mean, we were, honestly, we were like brothers. I mean, when we had same personality, the same thought processes and so forth. But we looked at each other at the same instant and get blown out. It's 7 nothing in the second quarter. <laughs> I mean, we're, not, we're not getting blown out. We're playing pretty good. But Paul had played those guys a lot, many times when he was in Cleveland, and he knew exactly how explosive they could be. They ended up winning that game 17 to nothing. That was the first playoff game the Bengals ever played. It was in Baltimore. It was before, of course, they moved to Indianapolis. And um, United's had a good game, but the defense played played him pretty darn well. The offense just couldn't seem to put anything on the scoreboard to, to get it any closer. Yeah, and you talk about Paul Brown. You want to talk a little bit about the influence Paul Brown had and Bill Walsh? Because I, I would think you, you were so lucky. You're going to be a professional football coach, and you worked under – Paul, or who played under Paul Brown, Bill Walsh, George Allen. I think Marv Levy was on the George Allen staff in Washington. You want to talk a little bit about teams. Yeah, and I'm sure just being around those guys probably had at least a little bit to do with why you wanted to be an NFL coach. Well, absolutely. I and mean, you left out another important guy, Don Coriel, the St. Louis yeah. Cardinals. I mean, only there for a short time, but uh, and Jim Ringo up in, uh, in Buffalo and but anyway, I, I was always around. I was so, you're right. I, I was blessed. <laughs> I was always around sharp minds, experienced uh, guys that had um, thought through not only an offensive scheme, but how an offensive scheme beats certain defensive problems that are presented to you. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're playing a team that's blitzing all the time, they're always playing man-to-man behind it. They have to. They don't have enough players to do otherwise. And, or if you're playing another team that's playing a lot of zone and not giving you the extra rusher, you have an entirely different game plan approach to the game plan. I never do that. I always just thought you had your your offense and you ran it no matter what was on the other side of the ball and you tried to beat them. Yeah. But um, the, the theory, the um, strategy of the game, you couldn't have learned from better people than than I just named and you just named um, for for me to be ready to go. And when Paul Brown offered me the job years later after I retired, I'd come back and I'd gotten a chance to play in Super Bowl Seven with the Washington Redskins. I had a pretty interesting roommate named Sonny uh, Jorgensen. <laughs> Billy, Billy Kilmer and Sonny and I were the three quarterbacks on that team. George Allen with the over the hill gang. There were guys on that team like Boyd Dowler and and Roy Jefferson again was there and Mo Patios and Byron Talbot from the Los Angeles Rams and we had some uh, you know interesting personalities but they brought a ton of experience along with the, the other coaches. So for me personally I moved through just at the right moment, met the right people and um, later Bill Walsh and I ran into each other in Tokyo, Japan. And uh, I was playing for the St. Louis Cardinals at the time, and he was coaching Chargers. We're playing a preseason exhibition game in Tokyo. And we came down the elevator together by just coincidence. We happened to step on. I was on a different floor, and there he was in the elevator. And he said, let's go down and have a cup of tea. 
<laughs> I said, okay. Uh, and we sat there, and after about 40 minutes of just chatting, I started to smile, and as soon as I did, he knew that I'd figured him out. And he started to smile back at me, and I said, Bill, we aren't having a cup of tea, for gosh sakes. You're interviewing me. And he said, well, maybe a little bit, but he said, if I ever get a head job, I want you to come for some passing game for me. Well, later, he, he did get the head job, and that was in San Francisco, and we ended up drafting Joe Montana in that first uh, draft in the third round that shows how smart the National Football League was in those yeah. days. Uh, passed up a guy like Montana. But um, Bill, uh, you know, of course, put in very much the same offense that Paul Brown had in Cincinnati. Uh, it became known as the West Coast offense because it was producing <laughs> a lot of, of uh, scores. Um, mainly because of the personnel that we had that was more experienced than it was in those early years in Cincinnati. But uh, Joe Montana and Dwight Clark from Clemson, we had some, uh, you know, we had some guys that just were perfect for each other. And um, But it didn't happen fast. Uh, you know, Bill went out there, and the first year we were 2-14. and 14, The second year we were 6-10. and 10. And the next year we go sixteen and three and win the Super Bowls sixteen against the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah, and was that a little extra satisfying for Coach Walsh since, you know, he got passed over by Bill Tiger Johnson when, you know, Paul Brown retired? Uh, I'm sure it was. Bill and I spent a lot of time talking together uh, in the quiet moments, so to speak. And I never heard him bring that up. Uh, he was, you know, not, he wasn't, uh, he didn't resent that as much, I think, as people um, thought he might have. But he was clearly one of the candidates at that time. And uh, Paul Brown decided to go with, with Bill Johnson, Tiger Johnson, who's a ter- terrific guy, terrific coach. And uh, but Bill was destined to be. Uh, a Hall of Fame coach, and and he is, and deserves to be. Yeah. Now, I'm from Indiana. Why do Indiana Hoosiers coach? Uh, They came came asking me. I don't know. Um, I replaced, uh, uh, shoot. Was that Corso? Lee Corso. Yeah, boy, that went ahead you know, I've had a heart transplant. I didn't get a lot of oxygen to the brain there at one point, so <laughs> I keep having these spells. But um, Lee Corso, and, and uh, when I went to India, I, I'm not sure of the circumstances, whether he left or they fired him or mutual or whatever the deal was, but he was not going to be coming back. And uh, we had been to the Super Bowl and won it uh, two years before. The next year, we didn't make the playoffs. We missed a little chip shot field goal in the last game. And had we made it, we go to the playoffs. We miss it. We didn't go. And um, Indiana called and said, can we talk to Sam? And I don't know. I didn't have any prior other than being, you know, in a, a neighbor state there for a number of years in Cincinnati. I had not um, at that time um had anything to do with with IU, but the athletic director, a guy named Ralph Floyd, was the assistant athletic director at the University of South Carolina when I was a graduate assistant under a young coach named Lou Holtz, who was I was his grunt, and Paul Dietzel was the head coach. Okay. So I'm throwing out some pretty impressive names again that I was fortunate enough to be around, and. Um, <clears throat> Floyd, uh, Ralph Floyd went to Indiana as the new uh, athletic director up there. Of course, he knew me through our time together in South Carolina. And uh, that's that was the connection, the only one I had. I had. I guess I must have had a pretty good interview, though, because they offered me the job. And um, Bill Walsh encouraged me to go ahead and do it. He said, you know, you've got to start sometime, Bonehead. You may as well take this one. And, yeah. and go with it. And after one year, Bart Starr got fired in Green Bay. Can't believe that the Green Bay Packers would ever do that, but they did. 
And um, Forrest Gregg was offered the job, his dream job, because he had played under Lombardi up yeah. there. And I left uh, an opening in Cincinnati. And um, I, I actually turned Paul Brown down four times. <laughs> uh, I just said, I've only been at IU one year. We raised $12 million that first year that I was at IU. Um, I had a big banquet with, with uh, a lot of uh, supporters. And raised $12 million, pledged to put in a, a facility that could compete with other Big Ten schools. Because at Indiana, at that time, Bobby Knight and basketball was everything. Yeah. And uh, Assembly Hall had half of it was basketball. The other half, literally, you go down the hall and there was the women's softball team, the golf team, the cross-country team, the football team, the tennis team. I mean, it was just... And then, of course, they go to Ohio State, Michigan, all those other schools that have Taj Mahals for uh, recruiting. And it was tough to to see a future there unless you got your own deal, which we did. And then I'm offered a job one year later. I just found it hard to, to turn it down. And at one point, I actually cried. I mean, tears came out. And I looked up at PB and I said, Paul Brown, and I said, Paul, you don't want to cry, baby, for a head coach, for gosh sakes. And, and he looked at me and he said, Sam, actually I do, because it shows me that it really, you know, this is affecting you. It means something to you to have to leave after putting in one year and, and having people counting on you. But you, uh, you know, you've got an opportunity here as well. And um, I ended up being convinced and, and uh, getting the blessing from the athletic director and the president of the university. I went to them and I said, you just give me the word right here that you don't think I should do this and I will not do it. I've got, you know, a, a contract here for five years. And they said, can't turn this and We're not going to ask you to do it. So I became the coach of the Bengals and, um, the rest became pretty fast history. Uh, and I'll tell you, I, I'm a lifelong Bengals fan. I was born in 1968. One of my favorite years is 1984. And it mirrored kind of 1970. I think you guys started off like 0-5, which had to be rough for you as a new coach. But what was it that kind of turned that season around? Because that team over the last 10 games was as good as anybody in the NFL that year. Yeah, we, we started out 0-5. I'll give you a little sidebar there. I got a phone call at oh, after we lost that fifth game. And we were playing okay. We weren't stinking the house up, but we weren't winning. And um, I got a phone call after the fifth loss from Joe Gibbs in Washington. And he said, Sam, and I didn't know Joe very well. I knew him through different um, events and charities and things. But that's what it And he, he said, Sam, I just want you to know uh, for reference here that I was 0-5 here in Washington my first year with the Redskins before we started winning. So just hang in there and you'll, you'll be okay. And I can't tell you how much I appreciated that call at that time. Well, yeah. we won eight of the next 11 and went eight and eight. And if Pittsburgh loses the last game oh, against the Raiders that year, we go to the playoffs. If We're they would have just started Jim Plunkett, Coach, we'd have made the playoffs. <laughs> They started okay, Mark Wilson, if I remember right, and then they put Plunkett in in the fourth quarter, and he drives him right down and scores, and I remember the interception. But, yeah, mm -hmm. and the other thing that had to be tough for a rookie coach that year is you had Boomer Esiason, who was the heir apparent to Kenny Anderson, but you still had Kenny Anderson, and I think the first game you guys won that year was in the rain at Riverfront, like 13-3, to and Boomer started. And I know it kind of bounced back and forth until Anderson got hot towards the end of the season, and he played outstanding against New Orleans. You guys had the Niners on the ropes. But how difficult was it to transition from Esiason to Anderson there? Well, um, you know, it was tougher to move from Anderson to Esiason, actually. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, you know, that you had a – an all-pro player, Kenny Anderson, and an experienced player, a proven player, and all of those kind of things. But um, you have to plan about a year or two ahead of when you think a player is going to have played his time. It's tough to make those decisions with the great players. I had to tell Chris Collinsworth, I think Chris is time. You know, we've got to – and he wasn't real happy with me until 
couple of years later when he was making about eight or nine million dollars a year <laughs> on TV. Yeah. <laughs> but but anyway, Chris uh, is you know is a very good friend, and uh, I'm glad everything has worked out so well. He's one of the best on the TV right now, by the way. Yeah. But in moving, we did exactly. I did exactly what we had done with Joe Montana and Steve DeBerg, who was the the starting returning quarterback when we first went there in San Francisco in '79. We just fed Joe in. We tell him you're going to play the second series in the second uh, quarter today, whoever we were playing, and he would go in there regardless whether on the one yard line or at the fifty yard line. You're going in. And we just fed him in, and the team was not winning. I went two and fourteen, and we had a lot of building to do. Obviously, the team the year before had gone two and fourteen in San Francisco as well. So we knew we weren't going to turn it all around in one year. We had to get that quarterback instilled and not have any bad thoughts in his mind. Everything needed to be positive for him as he took over the the helm. And Steve DeBerg was like a coach on the field and helped Joe Montana, so that worked out great. And that was the process that we used in Cincinnati with, with Boomer and with Kenny Anderson. And Kenny, of course, it couldn't have been more. He was like a coach on the field for Boomer as well. Yeah, Ken, Kenny's a great guy. I had him on the show a year or two ago, and you can't ask for a better person. Um, no. We look 85, 7 and 9, just barely missed the playoffs. 1986, uh, I think, was a year that was big on building 1988. You guys picked up six starters in the 86 NFL draft, including Joe Kelly, Leon White, Lewis Billups, um, I think maybe the greatest safety in Bengals history, David Fulcher. Um, that year, you guys go 10 and 6. You came up short because of a three-way tiebreaker with the Jets and Chiefs, which I still haven't figured out since we beat the Jets 52-20, to 20, and they still got to go to the playoffs with the same record. But by the end of 86, this has got to be kind of frustrating because it's become kind of an annual event to film the Bengals watching a game somewhere to see how their fate gets determined. Well, that's right, it is. And, uh, and in those years, by the way, as you have Pretty much implied, we were a uh, we were an offensive powerhouse. We were getting better and better every game, not every year. And the no huddle offense was brand new. Nobody else was using it. Nobody else even tried to copy it the first few years. But I think we I don't think we dropped out of the top ten uh, maybe once during a strike year. Uh, the entire eight years that you know that that coaching staff, our coaching staff, was there. And part of it was the scheme, and the other part, and the major part, of course, were the players. We had, a, we had the right personnel in the right place, and probably the best offensive line in in Bengal history, and maybe the best offensive line, in, or it could compete to be among the best. In the I, I think it's top ten NFL. all time, at least. At least, yeah, you're right. So we had everything going for us there, but defensively we weren't quite whole yet. We had a great defensive coordinator in, D- in Dick LeBeau, so we were all set when time came. And uh, in that 10-6, and six, most of the time we lost games with pretty heavy scores. We didn't, lo- we didn't lose three to nothing very often. No. Oh, the one that gets me was the Denver game. The officiating in there killed us. We'd have been in a playoffs if it wasn't for that one, but... Um, yeah, well, the officials are, uh, you know, they, they do the best they can do. They have off days sometimes, and uh, the New Orleans Saints can, can uh, attest to that and will be for years to come. <laughs> that one call uh, will probably bring about some serious changes in, in um, the way that officials are reviewed and the way they uh, review during the game. You know, what do they uh, accept as final call and what do they review because there's enough question about it i still think they're going to end up reviewing pass interferences the cfl does it so there is a the only problem with the cfl doing it it also extends about every game by 10 to 15 minutes but in the end do you worry about how long the game is or whether you get the right team winning the game i guess but well, that's where TV comes in, because TV would like for this to be a three-hour oh, yeah. um, segment. More and uh, that's why a lot of it. <laughs> that's right. 
And that, you know, that's why uh, a lot of the, the, the rule changes have happened about the, the clock and when you go out of bounds and so forth. And as long as it's not inside the, the finish of the first of the first half of the fourth quarter, but the, the, that will be a factor. But I think there are answers to speeding up the review process. I, I know they want to be sure, but it, as I look at it, you know, when they show it on television, well, he doesn't take one or two looks, and you can tell whether the guy was interfered with or not, or whether he caught the ball or not. And um, of course, officials are trying to make sure they get the time right, spot the ball where it is on the field, and all those kind of things. Maybe some, maybe more than one review can be taking place with different yeah. responsibilities, and speed that up real quick. I could watch it and see it in 30 seconds. They should be able to. <laughs> right. And while um, they don't hire us, we can't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then we go 1987, which was a mess with the strike. A lot of people thought you were going to be fired. Um, what was your meeting like with Paul Brown at the end of that season? Well, uh, actually, it wasn't with Paul Brown. Uh, PB had passed on. And... Um, the um, yeah, I'm well, talking about 1987. Yeah, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about uh, when I did get fired. <laughs> yeah, oh, we don't want to think about that, later. Coach. We'll just think about 1988. Yeah, okay, <laughs> right, yeah, I got, you know, oxygen the brain thing. All right. Um, well, my my meeting was Paul, Paul. All of Paul's meetings were always the day after the end of the season. It didn't matter if you made the playoffs or you didn't. Whatever day that was, and. Um, the day that I got fired a few years later, it was actually Christmas Eve. So Mike Brown assumed the same um, routine that Paul did. But the day after, we were sitting there with uh, first with me or the, the head coach with uh, player personnel director Pete Brown and Mike Brown and um, and Paul and uh, occasionally maybe, maybe uh, Frank Smouse, a scout, I'm being there, but. We would discuss personnel. We discuss are there any coaches changes you want to make with your staff. Uh, we discuss uh, even um, not in detail, but a general outline of when we would take a break in the off season, when the coaches would get a vacation time, and that kind of get it out of the way. But we would definitely spend most of the time on um, reviewing what happened and. Um, Never once did they say, we want you to quit that no huddle stuff because we were scoring at will. I mean, there were games, yeah. some of them, that uh, were just a fan's You're delight. talking about the <laughs> offense that Marv Levy invented like four years later, later right? That's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he's uh, the founder <laughs> of that. But uh, at any rate, PB would go over it, and he was a calm, and, and everybody else was quiet. PB always had the floor, and, um, you know, if he referred to somebody, then they would make a comment or something. But it was a, a, a quiet, comfortable review. I never felt threatened or never felt uh, challenged about anything. He would he would make sure that you could explain why do we run this stuff out exactly. Tell me what you're doing. My initial... My the start of the no huddle came from uh, an experience of watching a, a very good player in San Francisco run a go pattern and recover from that sprint down the field in just a matter of a few seconds. And it came to me that recovery time is your conditioning yeah. and conditioning therefore becomes recovery time. If we recovered as an offense faster than the defense did from the previous play, we slowly wore down that defense, and pretty soon chronic fatigue was set in. Pretty soon we were, we were playing against a tired defense. And most of the game, if you'd started early, you could play more than a half of the game against a tired defense. Obviously an offensive advantage. So that was how it started. Paul never questioned that. He understood it, and I think he kind of liked that idea. Yeah, and uh, there was also the rooming with players. He had a few different things that he suggested too, didn't he? On let's say that again. Uh, the rooming, how the players roomed. You roomed offense with defense, black with white. Oh, and also yeah. how much time you were spending at the office during the week. 
yeah, oh, yeah. Well, PB thought I was uh, spending too much time. He wanted me to go home and have dinner with my wife. And uh, I said, Paul, I just don't know if I can get everything done that fast, but I'll try. But the, um, the, the, the no huddle, he never, he never questioned that part of it. And he, he did like that. The one thing that he um, stressed, you know, during the whole thing was that I want to make sure that you and your coaches get rest. You, A, he didn't like the fact that I spent a little too long in the press conferences. I remember that after the game. But I like to answer, you're talking to the fans. When you have a yeah. press conference after a game in particular, you're not talking to the reporters. You're, they're the conduit to the fans. And um, I wanted to explain why we made a call the way we did or um, why we chose that that strategy on defense this week. And, and that sometimes took a little time to explain it to where the novice would understand it and the veteran high school coaches that were following the game would also understand it and not get bored to tears. Yeah. So that was a, that was a challenge. But uh, I, I never – felt like I didn't have Paul's complete support. That was a comfort and would be for any coach. Yeah, and you get to the 1988 season after the 4-11 and finish. Game one against the Cardinals, two goal line stands. I, the thing that that signaled to me was, as a fan was, you know, maybe this team's different because the defense just won them a game. Before, it would be the offense just outscoring the other team. And when you ca- talk about guys like David Fulcher, Reggie Williams, Tim Kremry, the defense was a lot more of a catalyst for that team than a lot of people realize. Well, they were, and, and coincidentally, yesterday, you know that last week, Turk Schoenert, who was on those teams as a backup yeah. quarterback to Boomer, passed away with a heart attack. They had a celebration of his life in Cincinnati yesterday, and I was up there. Um, I'm in South Carolina right now, but... Um, we had a bunch of the defensive guys were hanging around after everything was quieting down, and they brought up the fact that before that season started, I had the idea that this team needed to be a little closer together after a strike here, where some of the team wanted to strike, some of the team didn't want to. And we actually had some confrontations in the locker room a little bit, so we had to solve that problem. And I put a black player with a white player, an offensive player with a defensive player. Paul never he never objected to any of this. And I said, look, I'm going to name, and I told the players in a letter in the offseason, I'm going to give you, I'm going to sign you a roommate in training camp. Now, once the season starts, you guys can buddy up with the guys that you either, you know, have the same position with or whatever. But I want you, you wide receivers to understand how a defensive end thinks. And how a guy that came from a different background and has a different color skin, how they think and pull this team together. And yesterday I got a lecture from those players saying that was the best thing that ever happened to them as a football player anywhere along their way, high school, to college, or pro. That that solidified that team, brought the team that was already had good players, brought them together on the same page. So that was nice to hear as well. I think that made a difference, and it showed up faster with the defense because the defense, the offense was showing off before that happened, <laughs> and uh, the de- the defense now was uh, playing lights out as well. Well, I can tell you this. That impact is still felt to this day, as you just said, because I've interviewed most of that defense, and every one of them always goes back to that. And that team was so close. And then you had, you know, the Icky Shuffle, the SWAT team. They even made a rap video at one point. And that team, I mean, as a Bengals fan, it's the favorite, my favorite team I've ever seen. I know they didn't win the Super Bowl, but the closeness of that team still to this day has to make you feel good. It does. And, and boy, you're dead on with that because even to this day, they're staying in touch with each other. They are doing things, uh, you know, when there, there's a death or a special event, they get together and they celebrate it one way or the other. And, and during that season, uh, you could feel the difference in just the uh, night before the game. I always, you know, the team always ate together. 
uh, the night before the game around 6 o'clock, and then I would tell them to go chill out and just kind of walk from table to table and sit down and talk to some guys you don't normally talk to. If you're a, uh, a running back, you probably don't talk to the uh, the punter very often. Why don't you go over there and sit over there and talk to him for a while and just let this thing bond together real tight, and they bought into it. I think they liked it, actually. Probably hadn't, hadn't yeah. had that happened before. And as a result, um, the team just played better. But I'm hearing the same things you're hearing even today. They bring that up as something that uh, they remember as being a big factor. So that's good. Yeah, that team started off 6-0. and You had to loss to New England. Um, the thing that really stood out to me about that team is, I know that team didn't win the Super Bowl, but the effect it had on the NFL is still felt today. I mean, you talk about, I had Jim McNally on the show, and really, teams zone-blocked offensively before that, but I don't think they took it to the level he took it with the Anthony Munozes, the Max Montoyas, the Bruce Kazerskis, mm-hmm. guys like that. And I, I think a lot of that is missed to this day, that a lot of that was started there. And in Dick LeBeau, other people used his own blitz scheme, but I don't think they used it quite the way he did. Yeah, well, that's that's right. And uh, uh, talking about the offense first, the, the zone blocking scheme simply – means that you're not assigned a person, you're assigned an area, and whoever shows up in that area, you're going to block them. took a little bit wider split, so you created natural holes even before the snap of the ball. And then the lineman, of course, had to be pretty darn agile because you in open field a little bit more than normal, and you had to be able to change direction in tight quarters. But once they locked on, that offensive line just stayed with them, and the running backs were coming downhill. They weren't lined up close to the line of scrimmage. We had them fairly deep so they could see what was happening in front of them, and they would either bend it back or pop the hole straight ahead or bounce outside. You didn't know where they were going, but they were going where the hole was, and there would be one somewhere. And defensively with the uh, zone blitz, I, I remember – Asking Dick one time, I said, "Would you? How about just for practice? Because I don't know if we're going to see it, but I got an idea. It's not too far down the road where we'll see everybody in a two-point stance, so that nobody can identify the down lineman and therefore identify a blitzing linebacker." And we started doing that for just for fun, and, and Dick took it to the level that it is today, and, and made the zone blitz part of the best defensive strategies maybe to come along in a long, long time. Yeah, and you've got you got to talk to us a little bit about the feeling in this city as the head coach of this team in 1988, and you have to take into consideration you had probably the lowest of lows in 87 and the highest of highs in 88. I mean, you want to talk a little bit about the feeling in the city and what it was like to just drive around town? Well, uh, yeah, I almost have to contrast the two as you have right there. I actually had a group of players, I won't name who they are, but actually come to my house one time when they knew, they could tell by the way I was standing in front of them in the, in the meeting that day, I guess. I don't know how they know. They came home, they came to my house, and I'm talking about a, a number of them, maybe five or six players together and uh, knocked on the door, and, and my wife said he's sitting there in the room in there, and I was sitting in the dark. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I, was try, I was meditating and trying to position my, uh, my wits about me so that I could be a little bit more uh, enthusiastic the next day. And they walked in there, and they pumped me up so fast. They took me to, to a comedy show, a comedy uh, club one night. <laughs> I mean, they were actually taking care of the head coach. Uh, that's That was the feeling on the team and the camaraderie on the team that exists today among them. And then in 88, when we started out 6-0, as you mentioned, and beat some good teams, too. Beat Philadelphia yeah. on the road, in, I think, early second or third game. And, and that was the one where Boomer got clearly a late hit. Yeah. <laughs> I went up to the officials, and I was letting him have it. I said, you know, and he said, um, I, you know, I, don't, I didn't see it that way. I, just, I said, you've got to be kidding. And by the time I got through it, he said, okay, it was pretty late. <laughs> I finally got one of them to agree with me. We're going to change the call, but I finally got one of them to agree. With me. Okay, it was pretty late. 
But uh, Boomer's a tough guy and, and uh, probably as good a field general as, as I've been around and being around the Joe Montanas of the world and others. And Benny Testaverde and Drew Bledsoe and some guys that I've coached. Um, Boomer was obviously physically a big man and he grabbed him by the by their shoulder pad and told him to block better or he could take command any way he wanted to and then he had a calmness about him with that no huddle of getting him in the right place at the right time and getting the ball snapped within the right twenty five or I guess it was forty seconds in those days. Yeah, and you also talk about leaders. I mean, Anthony Munoz, Reggie Williams. That team was full of guys that were leaders. Um, you know, I think yesterday in that the celebration of Turk Schoenert's life, and there are so many of the players there. Mike Brown was there, and Katie Brown was there. And, um, the, Mike actually mentioned, you know, that he didn't, really never saw as many polished people uh, express themselves so well as that group did. And that group bonded together for a lot of different reasons, but they were quality people. These, they weren't outlaws. We didn't, we had uh, the case of Stanley Wilson, who was not an outlaw. He was not a bad guy. The drugs had just owned him. Yeah. And it wasn't because he was a bad guy. It was because it was just too much for him. It over. You know, just drug one. That's why I'm scared to death of anybody that takes that first puff of a marijuana cigarette. Yeah. It's always just the first one that's the killer. That's the one that gets you hooked, and uh, eventually it uh, it can cost cost you a Super Bowl. But um, the the team is still together, and that's the good news. The fans around in 1988. I'm told I didn't take any cabs, so I don't know this, but I'm told the cab drivers wouldn't charge the guys any money. <laughs> they said, we're making so much on tips with you guys winning that we're just, uh, we'll take you anywhere you want to go. Talk about the players. Yeah. So and, it, was, it was that kind of an atmosphere. And they finally honored the team this year, too. I think you were there, weren't you? What was that like? They did what with the team? Didn't they honor you guys this year? Oh, this that, year, yeah. yeah. We came back for the 50th or the 30th anniversary of that Super Bowl, and they also had the 50th anniversary of the original team, which I was a part of as a player. So I got to, I got two free trips. But uh, <laughs> uh, the 30th one was a lot of fun because the guys um, that really, uh, I, I don't know. I guess there have been with some of the teams. Since then, there have been some exciting years. But at that point in the history of the Bengals, that was probably the most exciting year ever. And it kind of turned the corner from being a team that was thought of maybe still a young team or an expansion team beyond their years to a winner. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, drop an interception about two plays before Joe Montana hits John Taylor in that left corner of the end zone in Super Bowl twenty three, or we would have been world champs. We were we were right there with him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I I didn't play, I didn't coach, but I still have nightmares about it. But uh, when you get to the playoffs in eighty eight, I think per, people forget the effect that Stanley Wilson had on that team against Seattle. He was probably your most valuable player in that game. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, the, the field that day, Super Bowl twenty three at Joe Robbie Stadium in Miami, the field had not been watered correctly, and it was coming up in 18-inch chunks because they restarted the field for the game. And the bend-back runners that we had, James Brooks, Stanford Jennings, uh, Icky Woods, and others, those guys were long-striding guys that would bend back and, and find that hole that would open up in the zone blocking and, and hit it full speed. But when they would start to bend back with a long stride, they only had one foot in the, you know, into that turf, and it was coming loose and took away their quickness. Stan Wilson was a different runner. He was a Barry Sanders-style runner. Short stride, wide base, didn't lift it probably more than a couple of his feet off, more than two or three inches off the ground. When He, he would have had those defensive guys falling down, and I think we probably would have fed him the ball, and he might have had a 200-yard day, and the 
eating the clock up, not giving Joe Montana an extra series or two to try to score. And the way our defense was playing, I, I just can't believe we'd lost the ball game uh, with him in there. That takes nothing away from the guys that played. It was just a style of play against the yeah. the uh, physical layout of the field because of the uh, and and he had the best guy in the country organizing that, uh, making sure that field was ready to go. George Tomo was this. Yeah, yeah, George. And and it was. Uh, you know, just one of those flirts, flukes that didn't uh, didn't take. So it did affect the game somewhat, and and we had the answer, but he wasn't dressing that day because of the uh, incident the night before, and I really had no choice. Yeah, but it was the, the toughest most... thing I ever had to do. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I I don't know how you could go through like something like that and actually come out and play play as well as you guys did the next day because. I've had guys like Joe Kelly and a few others telling me that Stanley was the guy that was actually a calming influence on the sidelines over the team. Yeah. He yeah, he knew he messed up, and that's why I keep saying he's not a bad guy. And he, uh, But the drug owned him, and it's a lesson that ought to be adhered to and listen carefully to what happened to him because it could happen to anybody. And the influence it had on the rest of the team, obviously, uh, you know, you win a Super Bowl, it's a totally different look that people give you and say, yeah, yeah we played, but we, we lost. Well, yeah. we were ahead with 35 seconds to go, but we were behind 34 seconds to go. Yeah. So, and What was that like to play against somebody that was such a close friend and Bill Walsh? Bill and I were so close that I, uh, it was his last game. I'm sure he gave them a great pep talk before that one started. So we were playing against about as tough odds as you could. But when he came across the field there, I, I, you know, I said, Bill, I love you, man. And he, I love you, Sam. <laughs> I was hoping that people wouldn't take it the wrong way and all those things. Cause we were Mike, but, um, we, we had a rush of, uh, you know, like they do at all Super Bowls, a rush of, of the media and the cameras and so forth. And Bill actually kind of gave out there. He just, he, I think the stress of it all and the uh, pressure of of winning his last game and how much he wanted to do that. And um, but, um, I, I was holding on to him. He was holding on to me. And then when he kind of gave out, I kind of leaned up against the uh, – uh, whoever was behind me, and uh, we made it off the field. Uh, the night before, we had, uh, I'm sure, the same thoughts in our minds. Here, here we go, guy that I owe so much to. Uh, I'm, I want to beat him so bad, <laughs> and I'm sure he wants to win the game just as bad as I do. Yeah, and then talk about another one of your coaching buddies, Jerry Glanville. <laughs> Jerry Glenville is but actually, the NFC North was wild back in those days. You had yourself, you had what Marty Schottenheimer, you had Chuck Knoll, you had Jerry Glanville. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about the rivalry in the old AFC Central? I think the AFC well, or the AFC Central was his uh, competitive was the competitive uh, leader in uh, the NFL in those years. Um, and, and mainly because there were geographical rivalries between Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, but Houston had Jerry Glanville. Yeah, that <laughs> makes everybody a rival to him. <laughs> That's, well, pretty much. And um, But, you know, Jerry and I are friends now. We see each other at different uh, clinics and things like that. And no, no uh, hard feelings over some of the harsh comments that were made between the two of us. I, oh, I stepped over the line. He stepped over the line. Both of us did too much, but um, in the competitive nature of the game, it it happens. Uh, but he was one guy. He was good. That was one thing. He was a defensive coach when he was with the Atlanta Falcons. I used to hate to play the Falcons because they they were physical. They were good. They were in the right place at the right time. It was hard to outsmart them. You had to out hit them and play them. And and sometimes they would win those battles, and sometimes we would. But um, the other coaches were, I just think, smart, good coaches, therefore tough opponents. Yeah, Nolan Schottenheimer, both great coaches, especially Noel. 
I think it's a guy that gets vastly underrated when people look at great head coaches because nobody hardly ever brings him up. And he's the guy that basically drafted about 12 NFL Hall of Famers and won four Super Bowls with him. Absolutely. And uh, and played for Paul Brown. Yeah. He was a Paul Brown uh, protege. And uh, I can remember Paul saying to me, you know, you remind me of a young Chuck Noll when he was coming out. Now I don't know where you're, whether you're going to be any good or not. <laughs> but I thought that is the ultimate compliment that he was saying to me. I've got some confidence in you, and, and uh, let's give it a good run. And we did. I, I'm grateful for every minute I was there. Some of them weren't weren't real good minutes, and some of them weren't. But you remember Billy Crystal and City Slickers? There, some days are good, and some days aren't. Hey, but That's this is the thing. When you played against the Pittsburgh Steelers as the head coach, I believe you won more than you lost. I did. We did. In fact, Chuck told me one time we were. It was in Hawaii. We were walking down the beach like two little love sick doves or something. I don't know. <laughs> and I don't know why we ended up that way, but we just we did. It was a break in the action in the league meetings. And I'll tell you when it was, he, he was all excited about the fact that he wanted to show me uh, his camera that was waterproof. <laughs> One of the first waterproof cameras uh, that that uh, were on the market. But anyway, he turned to me and he said, Sam, do you realize now I had just gotten fired that year, by the way, he said, but hired again within a week or so by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So I was the head coach of the Bucks, And um, he said, do you realize you're the only active head coach in the NFL that has a winning record against me? I said, no, sir, I don't. I had, I remember you kicking our butts a bunch of times. I thought we lost them all. I don't know. But what do you mean? He said, nope, you won 10, we won six. You were 10 and six over the eight years that we were in the division together. I went back to check it, and we were. We won, I think, like six in a row at one point, though. We, yeah. we were so hot. I think it was 88, 89, and 90. You swept them all three years. Yeah, it was. But, uh, but you do remember those when you get beat, and <laughs> it kind of dulls your memory of the victories. Yeah, it seems like losses stand out more than wins a lot of times. Um, you, you talked about it. You went to Tampa Bay. What was your experience there like? And I still. I mean, you drafted, you know, three or four guys at Sapp, Brooks, and Lynch that were huge and then went into the Super Bowl a few years after. Yeah, we had we, we ended up with a lot of good draft picks defensively early. Um, I, I don't want to say we missed with Trent Dilfer, but he just wasn't quite ready to, to assume the starting role. Um, and uh, I got Steve DeBerg to come back, and who had been with me in San Francisco. I'd been with him, and... Um, buffered that a little bit, but we we were missing a few players, and and honestly, Tampa was really down. They they uh, had a lot to, a lot of things that needed to be fixed, uh, not just personnel, but uh, policy and um, the way practices and things were conducted. So it took a couple of years to get straightened out. And by that time, Mr. Culverhouse passed away. Um, uh, with cancer, the, the the owner that hired me and Malcolm Glazier came in and just boldly said, "You know, I'm not going to make a a um, sign a contract in time for you to have any free agency, but I've, we've got a handshake agreement, so um, no free agency for you that year." Well, the year before. Malcolm, or uh, Hugh Culverhouse had told me he was going to sell the team and therefore he wasn't going to put any money into free agency. So he went two years with no free agency money at all. We just picked up guys who were off, you know, cut on waivers from other yeah. teams. So that slowed that down a little bit. We, we were close. We got you know, our record improved every year. But uh, when, when Malcolm took over, he wanted to bring in his own new staff, which makes sense. And Brought in a pretty good guy in Tony Dungy. So took Tony a while, though, to, to uh, get the team winning. It was just a, a long haul there. All right. Now, I know you had a heart plans, a transplant a little over a year ago. How's everything going on that front? Haven't had a bad day. Not yet. I, I uh, 
exercise a lot. I ride the bicycles in my little deal. We got a little what we call the Doodle Trail, a seven and a half mile uh, rails to trails. I take an old railroad track that's been decommissioned and they pave it, pull up the uh, cross ties and the, and the rails and pave it, and uh, you got to really nice through the countryside and through the woods and. We passed two Indian burial sites on the way, and it's just a fun trip. But I, uh, I'm staying with that and a little bit in the weight room just to stay healthy. And it's been two years, two months, and about, uh, I don't know, seven days now, eight days. Not that I'm counting or anything, obviously. <laughs> but, um, but I really haven't had a bad day. I've, I've worn myself out a little bit on occasion, but it wasn't because of the heart. Yeah. Um, also... I remember this in the mid-80s, 1984, 1985. They used to have a Sam Weiss magic show trick at the end of every one of Channel 5, WLWT's Cincinnati Bengals show that they do on Sunday night. You still doing your magic? I do. I, um, of course, I fell off the planet there for about a year and a half during the heart deal, but uh, yeah, I still do magic when I go. I speak at a lot of high school. I probably speak at 40 to 50 high schools and middle schools a year. And I'm talking about the temptations of drug, alcohol, tobacco, and now that it's sex abuse in high schools and middle schools. And I always take some magic and I do a, uh, a trick or two and I tell them that if you guys will shut up and put those cell phones away, I might say something that means something to you. And uh, we'll have a halftime show as well if you're really good. And we'll do the old cut and restore trick. I tell them we'll get somebody to volunteer. We'll get up here, lay on the table, and I'll cut you in half, pull pull the table out so that we'll see that you're completely separate, and then put you back together again. And it almost always works, so you'll really enjoy this. (laughs) As soon as I say it almost always works. Uh, and you got no volunteers, right? <laughs> you get no volunteers, and you get a quiet crowd too. But, but uh, anyway, they're they're good. But I, I enjoy that you know talking to young people and and hopefully catching them in the most influential time in their life and maybe seeing some of the registers and in doing so, you got to get their attention, and that magic does it. All right, Coach. I really want to thank you for coming on the show today. It was an absolute honor. I appreciate everything that you guys did in 1988. I still remember going to the game, sitting in the stands with my dad. That'll always be a special moment that I'm fond of, and I just want to thank you for that. You are welcome. It was the same for me. (laughs) I uh, enjoyed every Sunday. Hey, and and I do have a request now. All right. I've got, Uh do you know who Steve Risley is? No, I don't. Good, because now I can Steve. make fun of him for it. Steve Risley played basketball for Bob Knight at Indiana. He was on. He was a senior, played on the 1981 national championship team. Yeah. And he got mad because he heard that I was interviewing you, and he couldn't do the interview today. So if you're free. <laughs> and then I say, no, I don't even know who you are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I don't have my hearing aids yet. Yeah, but see, this is <laughs> the thing. That. This is the thing. Steve's probably listening right now anyways. But Steve wanted to be a part of this interview, and he wanted to see if there's any way maybe next Thursday you could come on at noon, just give us 15 or 20 minutes, talk about the Super Bowl a little bit. Uh-huh. Like, you mean next Thursday? Yeah. Um, I may be, in a, I may be traveling because I've got to be in uh, – well, actually, I've got to be in Cincinnati um, – I think it's Thursday night or Wednesday night. I don't know. I haven't got the title in front of yeah. me. But, Basically, yeah, we'll, we'll we're, open, we're open Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday because Monday we've got Don Horn, who played for the Packers. Friday we've got LaVon Kirkland on at noon. Or not, it's Rocky Blyer next Friday. So if any oh. of those three days, if you could fit it in, just give us 15 minutes so he'll quit complaining to me because he didn't get to talk to the former Indiana football coach. <laughs> He said something about he wants to know why you changed the logos and the colors. <laughs> oh, I'd like to know that myself. I, I'll have to think about that one. Uh, but, okay. Hey, well, I, I would love to do it, and I will do it. Uh, you're going to call me back, and we'll set it up. Yeah. All right. Hey, thanks a lot, Coach. All right. Thanks. 
All right, guys, I want you to remember you can hear all of our legend shows on thegrillingtruth.net. Yesterday we had Ron McDowell, former teammate of Sam Weiss, played yeah. for the Washington Redskins, Buffalo Bills, absolutely a great guy, too. Um, tomorrow you can catch us on Survive in Advance. We'll have former Pittsburgh Steeler LeVon Kirkland on to talk about his Super Bowl experience. That's at noon with myself and Steve Risley. You can hear all of our shows on iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, Spreaker, Stitcher, Wherever you find sports podcasts, you'll find The Grueling Truth. So for Sam Weish, I'm Mike Goodpaster. You've been listening to The Grueling Truth, where the legends speak.